Welcome to Cow Talks. I'm Chris Pravat, Beef Cattle and Forage Economist at the University of Florida. And I am Marcelo Valau, Forage Extension Specialist with the University of Florida. And this is our podcast, where we dive deep into the main topics affecting livestock and forage production in the southeastern United States. From the mainstream media to new technologies straight from our research stations. From cattle prices to international trade. From our pastures and beyond. Join us on this journey as we tackle the main issues affecting our producers and the sustainability of our production systems. So we'll just start introducing our guests today, Chris. Uh, we have Dr. Sally Denota from the vet school. She's a clinical assistant professor in vet school, and she's our equine extension vet. We also have Dr. Teresa Weekins, is an associate professor and equine extension specialist in the Department of Animal Science, and also a dear friend and collaborator. Welcome, Carissa. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Um, I re- started receiving some calls from agents uh, earlier this year from, from Marion County, and I did not have a good answer. So my first, my first recommendation was, let's get uh, Dr. Weekins, Dr. Denota lined up on this question because it's uh, outside of my range. So brutalism. Sally, do you want to bring some background information on these cases and what we're experiencing here? Sure, I'm happy to. And um, thanks for inviting me today. I'm happy to be here. So this all started in February um, at the large animal hospital where we had an emergency uh, call about a group of horses that had been, some had been found actually just dead in their pastures, which is, you can imagine, a pretty alarming uh, finding for any horse owner. And the other horses that were housed in the same pasture were um, also not acting quite right. They weren't really colicky. They didn't seem to necessarily be in pain, um, but there was something certainly wrong with them. And certainly in light of having some horses that had died, um, they opted to bring those horses into the hospital immediately. And anytime we have a scenario where multiple horses are suddenly ill, you start to worry about some sort of a toxicity, whether it be plant-based or feed-based or water-based, generally something that all the horses would be exposed to. And here in Florida, the things we think about usually are creeping indigo. Um, We've had a few cases of that lately that can cause neurologic disease in multiple horses at a time or Ionophore toxicity was really the other thing that I was thinking of before the horses arrived at the hospital. That is um, a toxin that is produced by, um, or a, sorry, that's a feed additive that is added to ruminant feeds. And um, it's used as a growth promoter in ruminants, but is exquisitely toxic to horses. And so sometimes we have feeding mistakes where horses get ruminant feed and that can create sudden death. But when these horses actually showed up at the hospital, they were showing signs of generalized neuromuscular weakness, um, meaning they were having a hard time standing. Imagine if every muscle in your body was feeling excessively weak. So they shake when they try to stand. They got off the trailers and essentially laid right down in their stalls. Um, Some of them were having a difficult time breathing because breathing is actually an active process. You need your intercostal muscles between your ribs to to move your thorax up and down. Um, They had very weak tongue tone. So if you pulled their tongue out from one side to the other, they'd actually leave it hanging out of their mouth. They they didn't have the strength to retract it. And that leads of course to very slow eating or inability um, to really eat effectively. And these are all classic signs of botulism. 
um, which is a disease that affects horses. Luckily, not down here in Florida and the Southeast very often, but um, I was having been up in New York for about a decade prior to coming to UF, we did see uh, botulism fairly, fairly routinely. Um, and these were really classic signs. That is interesting. So you said it's it's not something very common here. Uh, you so whenever whenever that came up, I probably you're probably quite puzzled in in the sense of which direction to go uh, to solve this issue. Yeah, and and I think luckily we had a few veterinarians um, that were on that week that had seen and treated botulism in the Northeast, where it is more common. It's also um, more common in Kentucky areas, and it can affect adults and foals. But it's thankfully uh, relatively rare down here in Florida, but the signs are very characteristic. Once you've seen one, you know what they look like. So, Carissa, when we talk about this, uh, we, we get worried about what is causing those those issues. What is the origin of this uh, this this botulism issue? What did were what were you able to identify as the origin of the issue? So um, again, thank you, Marcelo and, and Chris, for having us today to, to talk about this important topic. I appreciate being here. Um, I, again, I, I defer largely to, to Dr. Donata. Um, Sally is our extension state vet and, and having that first you know, group of horses and, and what they help identify in terms of the horse health issue, that is definitely their expertise. Um, but in terms of botulinum toxin exposure, you know, typically when we're talking about horses and, and livestock, a lot of times what we're dealing with is contamination in, in the feed source. In this case, um, you know, it, it started with hay. So um, usually this entails a, a dead animal carcass or, or something within the hay that the horses are now consuming that contains that botulinum toxin, um, which is, is the initiating factor in the issue. Um, so, you know, just, it's hard to to really know for sure un, until you start noting symptoms and then just trying to kind of work backwards from there of, you know, what which horses on the property are affected um, or anything else in the management that's changed that can start to, to maybe lead us to to looking at a feed source um, in this case, you know, looking at the forage that the horses are receiving. Um, botulism, the disorder is caused by um, a neurotoxin, botulinum toxin, and that toxin is produced by clostridial species, um, clostridial bacteria, which are common in the environment, um, but clostridia species are anaerobic bacteria, so they proliferate and produce their toxins in anaerobic environments. And so horses who are extremely sensitive to um, botulinum toxin compared to other species, they are susceptible to this disease if they accidentally ingest botulinum toxin. Um, generally in, in hay up in the Northeast and in Kentucky, they, they call this disease forage poisoning. And it's most commonly associated with feeding horses, um, round bales or large block bales. And so types of hay that or um, silage actually, which is actually the reason why we recommend that folks don't feed horses silage because when you have it when you have that silage curing in those silage bags it's very easy for them to not reach the proper pH have excessive moisture all of which can create an environment that really allows clostridium to propagate and it may still be okay for cattle but not for horses that are so sensitive to that toxin so 
that's the primary cause of botulism in the Northeast and Kentucky region, and that's usually type B. There's three serotypes that generally affect horses. Um, type A is pretty uncommon in the East. It tends to be the reports are out West, and that's actually um, a type of botulism that's been reported from feeding horses grass clippings. So again, a lot of these are the things that horse owners hear about, you know, don't feed your horse grass clippings. Well, that's why you get those hot piles of grass clippings that a day later have created an anaerobic environment and botulism has grown in the center of those piles. And then finally, there's um, botulism type C. And I always think of C for carcass. That is the type of clustridium that grows in decaying um, uh, animal matter. So think, when thinking about the baling process, it's easy to get small mammals, um, rodents, even baby deer can get caught up in some of the big balers. And those carcasses decay in the center of those bales and create botulism toxin. And, and in here in Florida, um, that is usually the cause of botulism because we don't have, interestingly enough, our hot, wet human environment doesn't doesn't really lend itself well to to the botulinum or clostridial overgrowth. And then there was a there was a big big outbreak in Ocala, I believe, about ten years ago, and those horses, I believe, were fed silage. Okay, so <clears throat> tracing tracing back on we got a little background on what the issue was and, and how it proliferates. Uh, through this process, this recent outbreak, what were you able to trace it back to? What was the origin? Was it a single origin? Was multiple origins uh, for this? Those cases of uh, the toxin in the in the feed. It looked like probably a hay source, um, just given the um, the fact that several there were several premises affected, several horses on each farm that were all eating the same uh, similar hay source. Um, the state veterinary office started, a, it's pretty standard for them to conduct investigations anytime there's an outbreak of any kind of infectious disease, reportable disease, or intoxication. And I believe that investigation is still ongoing. So um, I'm not sure what the outcome of that is, but all of the signs pointed towards probably a common case source. And um, likely a hay source that perhaps had an animal contamination and with the larger bales or the larger baler machinery, if you get a couple fawns or you know a, a couple deer that are bedded down, it, it's not impossible to actually get them spread out, if you will, across a few, you know, a, a, a multiple numbers of bales it could then end up on multiple farms so it's not that the entire batch of hay is bad the hay itself is fine but anywhere where those little carcasses ended up could potentially have toxin in them but we don't we don't know that for sure yet um, where it, where exactly it came from so interesting it's um for example we can have the same as you're saying or you can have the same batch of hay but just one or two bales were contaminated and that does not condemn the whole the whole load correct and you could even have a horse eating from a different part of that bale and be totally fine so that makes it difficult especially with the type c where it's really only the areas that might have that carcass um, produce toxin versus forage poisoning where you might have an entire batch of spoiled hay and the implications for that are of course when everybody hears about botulism in an area or an outbreak, the first thing they want to say is, well, how do I test my hay so I know that I'm safe for my horse? Of course, that's you know a really common scenario. Fortunately, because the toxins 
present in even just small areas within one single bale, there's no way to really get a great representative sample from an entire hay source, even not even a single uh, a whole bale, um, and really and prophylactically test for safety prior to feeding to horses. As you said, it's it's probably it, it's hard to detect. It's not going to be a generalized issue, but whenever that issue comes up and it gets, especially on the social media and um, and the information get dispersed, so I, I believe the public perception uh, or the public will get very, very worried about and, and condemn all hay or all products uh, related to that, uh, to that store or anything. Is that what happened there too? I think it probably wasn't the first example of social media not really doing any good for anybody. <laughs> It, it, yeah, it's it's a it, unfortunately it's a mechanism of propagating a lot of misinformation um, and putting people who um, certainly would never have willingly contributed to the disease of any horses or their customers putting folks in a pretty tough spot. This is a disease that happens. It happens all over the country, and it happens in good batches of hay because animals get in the hay without really anybody um, being able to prevent that. So I guess I'll just say that I, I, I don't, I, I don't support anybody. Um, I guess pointing fingers at any particular producers or case sources, or it really, this really isn't anybody's fault. This is a risk of having a horse and feeding it hay. Whenever you have a suspicion of botulism or that a horse was intoxicated, or even that it has been some cases in the area, and that you might have bought hay from that uh, same source. What would be the recommendation? So I think there's two questions in one here in terms of the hay source would be more on the management side. And if the horses were intoxicated, is there anything that can be done? So, I mean, I think first off, if you know it's going around, people need to watch their horses really well. I mean, of course, in a perfect world, you would just get rid of any hay, of your hay that could be from that source. But you might be talking about thousands of pounds of really valuable hay that is perfectly good. So um, that's not really a reasonable recommendation necessarily. Now, if you have small bales, checking them, checking each flake, and we recommend people do that anyway, making sure that you don't feed a flake with a squirrel in it, because that's actually going to be pretty high risk. But if it's a, if it's a huge block of hay or a, a huge round bale, that, that's pretty tough. Um, up in the Northeast, where round bales are commonly the cause of this, you can vaccinate. There is a type B botulism vaccination that's quite effective for adult horses. And then you can also vaccinate pregnant mares and the foals will be protected. But it's only effective against type B, that forage poisoning type. So it's not going to be effective against type C from a carcass or type A from grass puffing. So it's really not helpful down here in Florida where we really don't see type B very often, if at all. Um, secondly, really the main thing for people to do is if you notice any signs of botulism to get your vet out immediately because there is a there is an effective treatment um, but it has to be administered very very quickly um, it is a it's an antitoxin plasma product so it's a plasma transfusion and it's trivalent which means it has antibodies against all three types a b and c so if your horse has signs of botulism, the nice thing is you don't have to even have any idea what kind it could be. The trivalent antitoxin serum plasma will work. And so you give them one unit of this plasma and it essentially 
circulates around and mops up any toxin and mitigates it and clears it from circulation. The problem is, is it can't get to any toxin that's already bound to those neuromuscular junctions. So any toxin that's already essentially exerting its action, creating paralysis between the nerves and the muscles, that actually you have to just wait that out until those junctions are um, uh, rebuilt by the body, which takes a couple of weeks. Um, but uh, you can give the trivalent antitoxin and horses usually get worse for about 24 hours and then they should stabilize. And so if you're able to give it before the horses are say recumbent, before they have stopped, uh, don't have the ability to eat or before they're having breathing problems, those horses can actually have a pretty good uh, prognosis. So what would be what would be the symptoms we'll be looking for in a case of botulism? And what's the timeline that we need to, we're going to see it and that we need to act on it? The timeline can be quite quick. It depends on how much toxin they got. Um, some horses are very, very mildly affected and only a really kind of um, detailed veterinary exam will reveal any abnormalities at all, where some horses you know, die before anybody can get to them. But um, in general, think of, uh, like I said before, think of what you would look like or feel like if all of your muscles were weak. So everything from these horses' eyelids are so weak that, you know, normally if you try to hold a horse's eye open, they, they exert a pretty good squint back at you. These horses can't squint. So they their, their eyes, you can hold them open all day long without any fight at all. Their tongues might hang out or they might eat slowly or abnormally because they can't get their tongue to really engage. Some of them lose the ability to swallow. Shaking or fasciculating when they stand is really common, and they usually fasciculate more and more until they get so weak they want to just lay down. Occasionally, horses will colic because the muscles in the GI tract are affected as well, so they can get gas colic, action colic. Um, I was just going to add, I know um, Dr. Nada has mentioned this a few times. We've talked about just really watching your horses and, and being vigilant, but this is part of the reason, too, that we really try to work with horse owners to teach them how to take vital signs on their horses and just kind of get in the habit, especially when your horse is feeling good, to, to do those physical exams and just be really aware of what your horse's normal behavior is, um, body temperature, respiration, those kinds of things. Because again, early catching early symptoms and signs is is really, really important. So again, I know it's everyday kind of simple stuff, but um, you know, I don't think we're all very good at doing that sometimes. We, we take it for granted. So just that vigilance and, and knowing what to look for when, when things go wrong or things are abnormal so that you can recognize it quickly and get help. When we were seeing horses, we were certainly recommending that people that had affected farms really consider treating all of the horses that were eating the common hay source. Uh, just to make sure this is something that has to be administered by a veterinary, correct? Correct. So Sally, I want to explore something that you mentioned that, uh, so our public, most of our producers uh, that have been working with extension, they will contact the local extension office. And of course, there's not much we can do as a local extension office because this is a matter much more complex. We need to require, we, we need to go to the vet school and require a system from vet veterinary medicine. Uh, but also you mentioned the the contact the connection with the state vet so how does uh what's the role of the the, the state vet and how to how do normally people access the state vet in those cases the state vet acts somewhat similarly to our extension agents in that they are they are able to actually go on farm and do investigations of course related to 
more disease outbreak than say management practices like an extension agent might investigate. Um, but they are particularly interested in any, any communicable regulatory disease like strangles, outbreaks, flu, herpes. They'll conduct outbreaks and do contact tracing, try to figure out where that's coming from and then help folks um, implement quarantines and put horses in isolation on their farms to stop spread of various communicable diseases. Um, and then in this case, if you have multiple horses affected by um, a potential toxicity, they'll do the same type of tracing investigation to try to identify the source. They are generally notified by the veterinarians who are seeing the cases first. So whether that be a vet in the field that goes out to the farm and says, I think I have an outbreak of something, um, or I think I have a case of strangles. They'll collect diagnostics, and some of those some of those results, if they're regulatory disease, will get reported automatically to the state. So in this case, when the horses came into UF, um, we diagnosed them with botulism based on their clinical signs, and we immediately contacted the state vet and said, you know, I think we have an outbreak. We have reason to believe it's actually multiple farms, which ups the level of um, concern, of course, when you have multiple premises avail uh, affected. And so they took it from there. I'll just chime in real quick, Marcella. So coming at it from an economics perspective, so I'm probably th not thinking about it scientifically. I'm thinking about probably like the producers are. So kind of where I am is one, I need to be looking for these symptoms the same way uh, I personally look for respiratory issues in uh, incoming stalkers. And then two, um, really square bales are kind of like the only way we're going to be able to, to look through the hay and kind of search for any potential issues. So feeding it in a bunk with the square bale is uh, like the only like management strategy other than like looking for signs of symptoms. Um, and then, uh, then obviously if we see some symptoms, we want to be on the phone um, to our veterinarian, um, to UF as soon as possible as well. I would definitely agree with that. And, and recognizing that while square bales might be the safest, they're not always affordable or reasonable, especially in herd scenarios. So certainly plenty of people are feeding um, round bales and, and block hay because it makes sense for their operation. I would say haylage, silage, that's, those are for ruminants. You know, those are high risk feeds that I would never recommend for a horse, regardless of the scenario. Um, but the larger bales, you know, recognizing that some folks need to, are gonna feed those um, and just keeping an eye out for if you walk out one day and too many horses are lying down, um, call your vet. Sally, with, with the type B, the vaccine that is available, I mean, again, yes, it's not, a, we don't see it very commonly here, but if, if a horse is vaccinated with the type B, does it, does it afford them any even minute protection against the other botulinum toxins or really not at all? Like, do we, do we have data on that? Yeah, unfortunately it is thought to be, there's no cross protection that we know of. And so where it's really effective uh, are for horses that are being fed round bales in, in Kentucky and then foals are actually really susceptible. They have a slightly different kind of botulism. It's called shaker foal syndrome. And so where adults eat the toxin, that's already been produced in the feed. Foals can actually eat clostridial spores from dirt, the environment, all the other nasty things they put their little mouths on. And then the clostridia is actually able to 
um, germinate and, and start producing toxins in their GI. And that's probably related to the milk environment um, that's in their GI tracts. We know that it's a great kind of um, petri dish for anaerobic bacteria compared to adult horses. They don't have the same perhaps inhibitory microbiota that could be killing um, pathogenic bacteria. So in the foals, Clostridia actually grows, produces the toxin itself within the foal. And those foals get really, really affected and often end up on ventilators. Um, difference between the foals is we actually can effectively ventilate them. And there have been some pretty nice large-scale studies out of Kentucky that show about an 80 to 90 percent survival of foals that are on ventilators, even um, with botulism. You just have to run it out. Well, and Chris, you mentioned the square bales. I mean, again, I, I guess most of us are, we kind of consider ourselves just really, really vigilant on forage just because we love forage and we talk about and, and work with forages all the time. Um, but I mean, I know this may not be possible in that larger pasture, larger field situation, but, you know, I, I do encourage, and I think we, we can teach folks to even with those round rolls or those, those big pasture blocks, still even just walking out to where those horses are eating on that block or that round roll and just checking the forage occasionally. Um, you know, I, I just think that can still be helpful. Maybe that's advice that whether they'll, they'll actually choose to do that or not, it still might be good advice because regardless of the form of the forage, you know, just inspecting that forage periodically um, and knowing as best you can the, the source of where you're getting that from, I, I think that's helpful. And I think too, a take home is, remembering that disseminating information about the disease so people can be aware and protect their horses shouldn't spark, hopefully shouldn't spark widespread panic. It is frightening when these things happen. There are cases in multiple places and horses, you know, did die from this. But I do think it's good to recognize that this is a really, really rare condition here in Florida. And um, really the only other outbreak that anybody could remember was a decade ago from somebody feeding silage. So somebody clearly taking the wrong path with their horses. This is um, this was a scenario where people were feeding probably quite good quality hay and an unfortunate, you know, the maybe one in a million bale that had an animal that got into them. Um, and so this isn't something that should make people afraid of their feed or their feed sources or their feed stores. Um, this is just something that happens and luckily happens very rarely. Interesting. Uh, so, Chris, you mentioned you mentioned checking the pastures and all that, and um, and that links to uh, there is a lot of uh, folklore, and there is a lot of real issues in terms of pasture management, especially weeds and horses eating weeds. Sometimes the only thing green and growing out there is is the weeds, um, and so then the horses are consuming them fairly readily because there's no other grass or or good quality forage. So I think that's that's something we do have to be careful of. Marcelo, whenever you said pasture management, um, you know, one of the forages that uh, on the equine side that I think it's important to bring up is uh, sorghums with horses. Uh, we potentially would run into some significant problems there. Um, do y'all hear anything about grazing sorghums or sorghum silage? I, I haven't since I've been here in Florida. Um, when I was in Alabama at Auburn, um, we kind of heard more about it there. Um, you know, certainly it's, again, something that we have some resources on that, that we can share with, with others um, about, you know, why we avoid those, especially when we have drought conditions or if they've been heavily fertilized. 
Um, you know, those can be those nitrate accumulator type of plants, and they also have some other, other chemical properties that can be more problematic for horses. I, the only thing I've seen physically in our area is um, some pastures with a, with a little bit of Johnson grass. And again, we, we don't really want horses preferentially um, consuming a lot of Johnson grass, but that typically is, is still more problematic for broodmares. Um, and again, a lot of that is more nitrate accumulation and, and there's certain weather conditions and, and fertilization application conditions that set those forages up for accumulating some of those more harmful properties. Um, so again, I, I don't think we see a lot of it, Chris, but that's a good point. Yeah, on the sorghum side, we have both uh, nitrate accumulation and a prussic acid that can be can be an issue. But we have a lot of other forages that can accumulate. Well, basically, all forages can accumulate uh, nitrous depending on 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 the right conditions. Is that generally is not a problem. What is interesting to bring up is that most of those issues are rare. Uh, one of the comments is that weed management is an important practice on pasture management. So if you have a, a good pasture for uh, for horses, you can do some pretty decent weed control. Is there any other weeds, or talking about general, general toxic weeds, is there any other weeds, weeds that most of our horse folks need to be looking, uh, looking for here? And um, more specifically, Central Florida, where most of our horse, uh, the highest concentration of horses in Florida is. It's certainly any of the pyrolizidine alkaloid containing plants, um, and there's a lot of them, um, too many to name them all. I believe that the main ones, Carissa, correct me if I'm wrong here in Florida, are fiddleneck and um, pansy ragwort and maybe crotillaria. Yeah, shilly crotillaria. And I, I know this last, um, this last year, late summer, early fall, I saw several horse pastures with at least a few plants of the show, you know, shilly crotillaria. That, that seems to be fairly common. Luckily, they're not terribly palatable and horses will preferentially eat around them. But anytime you have too many horses on not enough forage or not enough grazing area, then they're going to eat anything they can. Um, and it's the scary thing about PA toxicity, um, it affects the liver and the toxicity is cumulative. So every time they eat one of those plants, they create a little bit more um, likelihood they will develop clinical signs one day. So they can actually eat the weed over weeks, months, or years uh, before they get sick. Just to just to wrap up, I was wondering if you have any pointers on pasture management and ideas on, on, on how people can uh, relay less on, on, on those hays, uh, relay less on, on feeding and more on pasture to make it... Uh, I would risk to say cheaper and safer environment for the horses here. You know, I, I think one of the biggest challenges and Sally already hit on this is having many horses on, on only so much acreage. And so we can very easily stress our pastures, overgraze them, overstock them. And so trying to set up a pasture management system, a grazing system where you can at least allow a few paddocks some rest and rejuvenation, um, you know, so giving those paddocks rest by rotating horses off, or maybe even just keeping horses off during periods of time where we have the heavy rain or, or bad weather conditions, that then they're just further, you know, digging up roots and, and, and kind of pulverizing that pasture and, and really being hard on it. Um, so that's, that's one strategy. Um, I, I think the other thing um, that we talk a lot about is just connecting with us so that they can maybe um, extend the grazing season. 
So, you know, Marcelo, you mentioned cool season forages. So um, during those fall and winter months, there's certainly things they can overseed or, or put out on their paddocks that will help extend that grazing season so that then, yes, they're relying less on purchasing and feeding hay. And I'd say an added benefit of making sure that you have enough space per horse, um, not just avoiding them having to um, kind of scratch around for weeds that they shouldn't be um, getting into and just the general kind of destruction of your of the pasture that you do have when you have too many horses walking all over it. Um, but also uh, horses tend to avoid, they have natural parasite avoidance behaviors. And if you look out in a nice big field, you'll often see a really nice big green long grass patch. And you might think to yourself, why aren't the horses eating that? That's beautiful. And more often than not, if you walk over and look, that's where all the manure is. So there's a saying about things you shouldn't do where you eat. Um, and and uh, that's, that's the horses follow that rule. And so, um, but if you have horses that are too crowded and they don't have enough room to have a latrine area within their own pastures, then they're gonna be grazing right up to those manure piles. We know that that's, that's where the highest concentration of parasite eggs. So you're gonna be contributing to just parasite problems. I just want to, to thank both of you for participating on the meeting today. Very great information. Just to remind uh, who is listening to us that uh, please go to extension publications, go to reliable source of information on getting your information. That's very, very important. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, Carissa. And I hope to see y'all soon somewhere. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us on this Cow Talks podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions, ideas, follow-ups, or comments, please reach out to us through our email, forages at ifas.ufl.edu. That is forages at ifas.ufl.edu. Or find us on our social media, uf.forages on Instagram, uf.forage team on Facebook, or uf.ifas.forages on YouTube.